as we enter into a study in First Peter, which each time I preach will be in, uh, I want you to know that this is a standout letter. There's no bad Bible. An old wise preacher once said that to me when I said, oh, this is the best passage in scripture. He goes, oh, there's no such thing as the best because that would mean something is less or worse. There's no bad Bible. But, or end, if you could say there are certain letters or passages that hit home more than others or as best as any other, the letter of 1 Peter fits that description. This is an important letter because you and I are not possibly going to experience trials or hard times or persecution or sorrow or difficulties. It is not just a possibility or a maybe, it is a fact you and I are going to experience very difficult times in this world. As Christians, we're going to experience things that we never thought would ever go with the Christian life. And so our study is called Heading Home. And you're going to understand why very soon it is called Heading Home. Anytime we embark on understanding a passage or a new letter in the Bible, there are three A's that I want you to hold on to. These are in your outlines that you have. They are the author, the audience, and the application. See, many times when it comes to studying the Bible, people will sit around in a group, or maybe you've done this in your morning devotions, and they say, or you say, here's what this verse means to me. And so Jill says that. And then old Jerry over here says, well, here's what that verse means to me. And then old Barbara over here in the corner, she's got a whole interpretation to herself that she thinks is great. And she says, well, here's what that verse means to me. Instead, we ought to be asking when we embark on Bible study, what does this passage mean, period? The Holy Spirit is not given multiple interpretations. The Holy Spirit is given one interpretation of every single verse. But what we often mean when we say those things is, here's how this applies to me. See, a passage on marriage is going to apply differently in different marriages. A passage on trusting God is going to apply differently depending on what you're trusting God in the midst of or for. And so as we embark on a new study, I have no fancy introduction for you today. No grand storyline here, but some good old-fashioned B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for you and me. Amen? Amen? So the three A's. First, the author. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter identifies himself as the author. He is the author. Though the book is written in a very a classy and eloquent Greek, we'll understand why in other studies, what the role of Silvanius was. He was one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent apostle of all. Peter is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other person except Jesus Christ. Peter, every time the apostles are listed, is listed first. He is a prominent author, a prominent man in the New Testament, and so you and I ought to perk our ears up if Peter is writing. Now, whether intentional or not, I like to think that God is intentional about everything. Isn't Peter someone that you and I can always relate to? If you ever looked at Peter's behavior, he, he's the brash, blunt guy in the room. I often think of him as a fisherman. I think he's big and burly. I think he's got a big, long beard, and he's got those deep, dark eyes. And I, I always imagine Peter just flying off the handle, and Jesus is always going, Peter, calm down. Peter who we can all identify with, eager to follow Jesus. Peter, uh, like you and I, writing big checks with our commitments that our actions don't always cash. Peter, the first one over the boat, 
I want to walk on water too, Lord. Catching Jesus' eyes like you and I, oh, I want to do this. This looks great. And then a wave comes and the swell rises and all of a sudden you forget who it is that gave you the power to walk on the water in the first place. And suddenly you start to sink and you cry out for Christ. Peter, that Peter. Uh, Peter, the one who turned and denied Christ after saying he never would. Peter, the one who deserts Christ when he goes to the cross after saying that he would surely die with the master, but also like you and I, Peter, the one who in the end came to depend on Christ. When they're on the shoreline that day, the Lord restores him and says, Peter, now feed my sheep. Peter, the one here who writes and leads the church into the future. Next, after the author, we see the audience. To those who are elect exiles, don't lose that if you want to circle it. We're going to go back to that and spend some time there. Of the dispersion, the diaspora, which is essentially the dispersion, they're, they're abroad, sometimes used as Jews. Like when James opened his letter, he says, to the diaspora, the Jews dispersed abroad. Here, it's a mixture of Jew and Gentile. There are Jewish themes in the book, but also Gentile themes. It's kind of a mixed group of the church that have been dispersed abroad this region, which those are some fancy names of some fancy places, but I'll boil it all down for you here. Essentially what might be considered modern day Turkey in that region. He's writing to them written in a time frame circa AD 64. The best evidence suggests that this particular letter was written either just before or just after Nero burning Rome. And so you have to think with your Bible scholar mind for a moment, how interesting it is that Peter would write certain things in a letter around a time when an emperor burns Rome, that same emperor needed a scapegoat for setting his city ablaze. And so who does he blame? The Christians, the evil emperor needing some people that would be an easy target thinks, you know what? I'll say it was the Christians because the Christians are associated with the Jews and the Jews were already hated in Rome and those Christians with their simpleton religion, they're the perfect target for something that I myself did. And so Nero, pointing at the Christians, leads them now into an era of immense persecution and Peter uses interesting phrases, whether it was before or after the fiery inferno in Rome, and he says fiery trial as a test that will come in 1 Peter 4. That would be the cause of suffering for Christians and the need for them to suffer well. Interestingly enough, in, over in chapter 2, Peter says that we should be honoring everyone, including authority, and he dares to say, honor the emperor. Anybody here ever have a problem with government leaders? Anybody here with Thanksgiving ever closer on the horizon? See some political wars at the dining room table as Thanksgiving approaches and family comes over and blue and red and everything in between? Honor the emperor, honor leaders. And while Peter makes no specific mention of the fire in Rome, it is pertinent that we understand whether at that time or what is to come, the persecution in Rome was going to spread out over the dispersion and Christians far and wide were going to come under duress. And so Peter here in this letter is essentially saying, get ready. It's coming. And it's coming to a neighborhood near you. 
The application then is quite simple as we understand the theme, the author, the audience, and now the application. The big picture of this letter is easy to hook our attention because we're thinking, hey, I go through some tough times in life. I don't see a culture that is always excited about Christianity. I have some family members that are pretty upset about my faith or like one brother who caught me on the patio today. He said, you have no idea how applicable Peter is in that letter to my life. I'm actually from another place internationally and boy are we going through it only God could write something so long ago that still applies to us today a beautiful beautiful letter encompassing not only the corruption and pressures from the outside but yes even you who are so holy the corruption on the inside amen anybody else sometimes the cause of their own trial Anybody else really wish you could blame external circumstances, but in the end, the only thing you can blame is the man or woman in the mirror? Peter understands. The Holy Spirit understands, and hence our series title, Heading Home. Reminiscent of the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's great work, you, Christian, carry a burden that is much too heavy for you to bear. And as you make your way to the celestial kingdom, which is heaven, following the king's orders, which is Christ, you will be hit with distractions of all kinds, demonic distractions, distractions from within, your own sin, the temptations and pleasures of this world. They call and beckon, submit, surrender, take the easy road. But the true Christian knows you will suffer, you will stumble, but the king will see you through as you make your way home. The proposition here and now is this. With each point we study, you can have grace and peace no matter what you're facing because this world is not your home. That key phrase, elect exiles, is where I want to spend the bulk of our time in the first point and then move on through the second and third point. All three statements in verse 2 will modify or interact with elect exile. Elect meaning selected and chosen. An exile here pertaining to someone who's staying in a strange or foreign place for a while. A resident alien. Early historical literature uses this particular word in connection, don't miss this, with civil servants who distinguish themselves for exemplary conduct while on international duty. We got any Christians here? Knowing that you are called to serve, to be distinguished, to be exemplary in conduct while on international duty, maybe earthly duty, this is not your home, you're just passing through but you have a role and you must also remember key truths while passing through because things are going to get very hard. That is what Peter wants you to understand before we jump in. And here is the greeting. First, you are the elect exiles of God because number one, you've been chosen by the father. He says, You are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now buckle your Bible study seatbelts because here we go. How can we say you are chosen by the Father if this is just talking about foreknowledge? Well, this is very interesting and I'm glad that you asked. Because God's foreknowledge is always linked to God's action. 
The word here in the family of words is prognosis or prognosco, meaning essentially that God didn't just think through the tunnel of time and go, oh, I sure hope some people will follow me. I'll send my son, he'll die, and and it'll be pointless if nobody believes, but I sure hope somebody will. No, that puts man in the driver's seat, man in control. Near, uh, or nor did God look down the tunnel of time and say, hey, I foresee who's going to actually believe, so I'll choose them to be my people. No, because that once again puts man in the driver's seat. Here, the Bible simply says something very clear and true, that there are elect or chosen people, not of this world, just passing through according to God's choice and his foreknowledge is always linked to action. In 1 Peter 1.20, God foreknew his son Jesus and then made him manifest for our sake. Action. God foreknew Jesus being delivered up to be crucified and he was. Action in Acts 2.23. Those whom God has foreknown or foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8.29. Action. And God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Romans 11 verse 2 and then verse 5. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant here chosen by grace. So often we wrestle with truths like this because we want to speak. We want the Bible to say what we like it to say. But we have to remember that when we come to any doctrine in scripture, we need to let the Bible speak. Amen. That might even be a good little exercise here on a Sunday morning. Why don't we say it together on the count of three? Let's say, let the Bible speak. Ready? One, two, three. Let the Bible speak. Amen. God's will is God's word. Therefore, if I want to know God's will, I want to know God's word. And here we come upon a doctrine that I guarantee and promise you I will defend. In this section, there are no fill in the blanks and there's a reason for that. No gimmicks, no shenanigans, no funny business, no scripture twisting, nothing but adulterated biblical truth. Are you ready? All right. Look down in your outlines. The key doctrine here is unconditional election, that God chose a people unto himself to give as a love gift to his son. And that is true and clear here, that the foreknowledge of God means action, that he chose these people. What a glorious truth for them, because they're going through racial prejudice, they're going through persecution, they're going through death, they're getting displaced, they're getting harmed by people they thought were neighbors and friends. And God says, no, no, don't worry, Uh, they don't control everything, I do. As you go through all this, Take comfort that while they can kill your body, they cannot take your soul. I chose, I know, you're mine. That's the reality here. It's a great comfort. And so we have differing truths. No, we have corresponding or complementary truths. And the first is this, that God lovingly and rightly desires all men to be saved. And he takes no pleasure in the death of wicked people. What that means, truth number one, is that anyone saying, well, the, uh, the doctrine of election means God is mean. It means that he's just up there like a cosmic abuser. He's just a big bully, sending a bunch of people to hell. What's the point of them even living? He's just a big, mean God. I would never want to believe in a God like that. The reality is scripture is clear. He is not at all like that caricature. 1 Timothy 2.4, instruction that we ought to be praying for all men and that God desires all men to be saved. That's what he writes very clearly. And God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
In Ezekiel 18, verse 23, and then verse 32, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel says this, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. That's rhetorical, by the way. God doesn't rejoice that the wicked perish. He is a loving and gracious God. And he goes on to say, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God's desire is that all men and women would turn to him in faith. He is a good and loving and just God. And this type of truth is of divine origin. And so there's another truth that is not at odds, even though it might seem to contradict. And that is truth number two in your notes, that God lovingly and rightly chose whom he will save. And he takes great pleasure in giving them to Christ the Son. John 6, 37 through 39 and 43, speaking of letting the Bible speak, how about we also let Jesus speak? Look what he says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's talking about a people who have been given to him. And you know, just like now in 2019, some of us get a little snippety because of doctrinal debates and we don't like it. And we'll get to some of that more here shortly in a second. But you know, you're nothing new and I'm nothing new when we wrestle with these type of truths because there was a group here listening to Jesus and that's why, don't miss it, it's up there on the screen. He answers them in verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. Jesus saying, why is this difficult for you? Are you the origin of all truth? Don't grumble. And then in verse 44, he ups the ante. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, in our Christian infancy, oh yes, it is true in our own human finite minds. We say what? I've decided to follow Jesus. I choose Christ. And we rush the altar, we hit the lobby and find a pastor. We go, I am choosing Jesus today. And while that is true in your humanity, if we could just bring in the Holy Spirit x-ray and put it right on your heart, you know what you would see happening inside of your heart? Divine surgery. God coming in and rerouting. God coming in and restoring. God the Holy Spirit coming in and making it so that that heart even can respond to God in the first place. Oh yes, like children we run and say, I choose, I choose. But all the while, brothers and sisters, just like an orphan is adopted by the choice of those and them that adopt them, so too you are orphaned and lost in sin. And God comes and says, mine. He chooses, you respond. That's what the Bible says. Matthew twenty two fourteen. for many are called, few are chosen. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Colossians three twelve. put on then as God's chosen ones. That'll humble some of us. I'm chosen. Okay, then act chosen. Paul says, be compassionate, be kind, show humility, 
meekness and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. You know what this all boils down to? God chose you. You didn't choose him. God had mercy on you. You didn't deserve it. So be nice to other people. Forgive and be merciful. You've been shown great mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Whether you are black, white, Asian, from Alaska, from the south, from the north, the east, the west, whatever the color of your skin, the reality is God's chosen people are not chosen because of the language they speak or the color of their skin or what merits they have. He looks at all and he says, if you are mine, you are one. You are a chosen people. There's no second class citizens. We're all first class in God's eyes. And here are two realities to pair up with those two truths when it comes to the doctrine of election. The first, reality one, is we struggle with the doctrine of election because first, it's a divine concept. Isaiah 55, nine, God says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. I am so glad that God's thoughts and ways are better than mine. Anybody else excited that what's going on inside of the recesses of your brain is not the be all end all? Amen. His ways are far above ours. Second, we think our way is best. People think that, you know, they cook the best, so they start a restaurant with their type of food, and that's great. But everyone doesn't eat there every night, so someone else starts a new restaurant and goes, I like this kind of food. There's different menus, there's different flavors, because why? Everybody thinks their way is best, or they like to have a little diversity. The bottom line is, our way is not best when it comes to this. There's one way, and it's God's way. Third, we don't like it. But how many of you know that truth is still truth, even when we don't like it? God has decreed. God has spoken. And even when we don't like it, we must submit and follow. That is humility. That is downright human. You're God. I'm not. Fourth, we have a low view of God. We really think that God has to do things our way. And we think that God would never do something like that because surely we know better. And surely our minds are higher. And so it's actually linked to a low view of God. Big God theology will be a big solution to a lot of your and my big problems. Sometimes we need to get a higher view of God. And so when we're struggling with the doctrine of election, an exhortation to you is be careful of pride demanding that God answer to you. And here's some devotional reading that you can embark on this afternoon. Job chapter 38, 39, and 40, three chapters. I'm actually giving you pastoral permission to not read the first 37 chapters of that letter, okay? Cliff notes, (laughs) cliff notes, all right? 
You jump to those three chapters, you're gonna get the whole storyline. Job is suffering. Job is in hard times. His friends are going, man, what did you do? Clearly God is angry with you. What did you do, Job? Pull the onion layers back on that heart of yours. It's smelly in there. It's stinky. You got some sins in the closet. I know it. Let them out, Job. Confess your sin. He's going, I've done nothing wrong. His own wife says, Job, honey, curse God and die. Get this thing over with. And Job held his own, but eventually, oh, he came to question God. Why are you doing this? Answer me, almighty. I demand to know. And God, out of the vastness of the heavens, roars with authority to Job. And you find out that while sarcasm might not be always very Christian, that there are times in the Bible when God Almighty is mighty sarcastic. (laughs) And he roars down, paraphrasing now, Oh, Job, tell me, created. Counsel me, the creator. Oh, it was you, Job, who set the oceans in their boundaries. It was you who raised the mountains. It was you who caused the clouds to come and pour out their rain. It was you, Job. I'm so sorry. Tell me, teach me, created clay, how I, the potter, might do things better. Oh, tell me of your wise ways, Job. And Job, like you and I, placed his hand over his mouth and he said, I've spoken once, I I shall not speak a second time. (laughs) Sometimes we have to remember that we're sinful and prideful when we demand that God answer us. But reality number two is doctrinal uh, Truths like election don't have to be so uncomfortable. We can embrace them and we can embrace the doctrine of election because first of all, the Bible teaches it. That needs no explanation. We're a Bible church. Second, it proves why some people reject obvious truth. Have you ever put truth in front of someone and you're wondering if they're even there? And you're going, I I just laid it out. It's clear as day. Your way's wrong, God's way's right. Look, debunked it. According to my calculations, you should be saved now. Ready? (laughs) And it doesn't happen. What's wrong? Who is the problem? No one. Ultimately, you bring the gospel and the truth to them, but the doctrine of election becomes the warm blanket for a cold day when people reject the message because you get to relax and say, Lord, I've done my part. Oh, it's, it's agonizing. Oh, I'm never gonna stop praying, but I know this is your work and you choose when the day of salvation will come for this soul. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Third, it doesn't change our mission on earth to evangelize everyone. This is what gets me most as a pastor when it comes to doctrinal debates like this. You know, people throw out big words like Arminianism and Calvinism and thisism and thisism and all the isms. You know, everyone's throwing stones. 
My way is right. My doctrine's right. Arguing all the while. And I remember back to a picture in my own life when I was a younger uh, intern, kind of pastor in training. And I was in the office with some other young guys. And, you know, we're debating. And we have seminitis, which I've told you about before, the disease that guys get in seminary where they're always using big words that only they know what they mean. And so no one understands except the five guys with, you know, their ties too tight. And so they have seminitis. And we're all going back and forth, eschatology, soteriology, and pneumatology, and all the ologies and our older wiser pastor can hear us and he pops in the door with all the young guns and goes hey what you guys doing in here oh we're you know talking about this and this and we're you know all looking smart apparently we're all getting raises now because he must think we're really smart right and he just looks at us like we were the fools that we were (laughs) and he goes oh wow sounds really smart guys who just saved today i'm just asking and he leaves. <laughs> and you should see this young group of pastors in training looking around going, oops, forgot the mission, forgot about the message, doctrinal debates on and on of isms and big words and ologies all the while. You know what? Whatever position you land on, guess what? The mission doesn't change. We must evangelize all. This is just a look under the hood, so to speak, of how the engine operates. God's doing it. And finally, it doesn't change God's nature. Yes, he chose. Yes, that means there will be those who do go into damnation. But the Bible is clear. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If God decreed it and he chose it and his ways are above our ways, then it is still loving because his nature is loving. What he decides is just because he is just. What he decides is good and right because he's always good and he's always right. Did you know that one day, as horrific as it will be to you and I, that even those that are walking their way towards the lake of fire in damnation will turn, they'll take a knee, and they'll fulfill the prophetic that is, every knee will bow. Now that is not something just to rejoice in, that is why we evangelize. But the reality is they will say, yes, almighty king, it is good, and it is right, and it is true. Even the worst news is still true if God decreed it. And finally, take comfort in knowing only God knows who the elect are. And let me say that twice so we really get it. Only God knows who the elect are. So often we play judge and jury. I'm not going to evangelize him. He doesn't look saved. I'm not going to evangelize her. Too many tattoos. I'm not going to evangelize that one. I don't really think they don't look like Christians. Christians don't look like that. And we start playing judge and jury. Understand each day, Monday through Sunday, we are called to give the gospel to all. That is the mandate irregardless of the doctrine of election. So while on the other side, we must be careful with pride demanding that God answer to us, we must be careful of pride if we embrace the doctrine of election for getting God's mercy on us. We did not save ourselves. People who are the elect ought to be the most nice, the most humble, the most charitable, the most gracious, and the most hopeful. Because if God could save you, he could save anybody. A friend of mine, John Sampson, wrote a great book called The Twelve Whatabouts, Questions on the Doctrine of Election. 
And in it, he says, the identity of the elect is known only to God, not to us. Only upon seeing someone defy God until their very last breath in this world should we assume someone is non-elect. That's a good truth. Until their dying breath, we hope, we pray. Goes on to say, God can open any heart. Salvation and the timing of conversion is of the Lord. And he quotes Jonah 2, 9. Number two, you've been consecrated by the Spirit. Oh yes, you've been chosen by God, but you've been consecrated by the Spirit. Big fancy Christianese word just means you've been separated out. He has looked down into the war zone of your sin and your brokenness, and he has plucked you out and said, mine. And he has called you and seated you in heavenly places. And don't forget our original audience. These are people in the perils of Roman persecution. So you can imagine on your best day here in Gilbert, I know it's not a real big deal if you've been consecrated by the Spirit. Oh, praise God. When's lunch? Kick off in an hour. And praise God, wear your jersey, watch the game, have a good time. But don't you dare forget that audience and even many of you when the trials come, friends. It will be a warm blanket on a frigid night that Christ, that the spirit of the living God and the Father have thought and remembered you. The spirit has hand-selected treasured children in God's family. You have a different name, a different hope, and a different home. And the Holy Spirit is one of the most neglected members of the Trinity. He's also one of the members of the Trinity, I believe, experiences the most confusion or abuse. People take the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and they kind of do whatever they want with it. And while there is a mystery to the Spirit's work, and some of his work is certainly mysterious, and you don't know when he comes and how he comes and if he will, it is certainly a truth that you cannot box and create a formula for the Spirit of God and just make the Holy Spirit do whatever you want him to do. But it is also true that Scripture has not made it as much of a mystery as some might think it is. There are objective truths about the Holy Spirit and his ministry that you can know. And so here, let's go through four. First, he brings conviction. As he consecrates and separates you out, what does that look like? It is, as Jesus says in John 16, 7 through 11, that he brings conviction upon the whole world. This is essentially the butterflies in your stomach when you hear the truth. It's not always goosebumps and you know high fives and happy. There are hard truths. It's the lump in your throat, the pounding in your chest, or the anxious thoughts in your mind that are shouting, does this truth hurt? Good, I can help. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing through conviction. You need to change. Now grab on, I'll help you do it. He brings conviction. Second, he causes regeneration. Another big fancy church word, which is not very foreign once you begin to see different origins and things that it means as well. It's the total renewal of your dead heart. If you've ever heard, you got to be born again, brother. You got to be born again, sister. If you're not born again, you ain't saved. Okay. And you're thinking, how in the world do I go back in my mother's womb, right? No, just like in John chapter three, when old Nick at night, you know, Nicodemus comes over to Jesus late at night when no one's around and goes, hey. How do I get saved? Well, Nick, you gotta be born again. What does that mean? 
This is a renewal. It is regeneration. It is, in today's terms, the ultimate episode of Fixer Upper. (laughs) Better than Chip and Joanna Gaines could ever do. And you are the subject of the episode. You are God's Fixer Upper. It is, as the French would say, a renaissance. It's a rebirth. It's brand new. You are not who you used to be. The Holy Spirit does that. But he also performs sanctification, letter C there in your notes. If regeneration is, I'm not who I used to be, sanctification is, but I'm not who I'm gonna be. He ain't done yet. There's still a work he's gonna perform. Thank God that he loves you and I just the way we are, right? Amen. Amen. But thank God that he doesn't leave us the way we are, amen. Amen. I'm so glad. I signed up for this thing, or at least I thought I did while he was choosing me. And I said, I choose you, Jesus. I thought I was signed on for something that would actually change my life, not leave me the way I am. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Philippians 1.8 is the great promise. He will finish what he began in you. And finally, he ensures glorification. Romans 8, 26 through 30, we see some great terms. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, justified, glorified. And you know what? They're all in the past tense, which means already done. God's already written the contract, signed it, stamped it, put his seal on it, gave you the Holy Spirit. It's a done deal. You here might experience trial, persecution, suffering, loss, sickness, death, and pain. But in the end, you're just passing through. There's a greater hope, a greater home. You are highly esteemed as a chosen child of God. You're given an inheritance. Many of you did not receive an inheritance from your father and mother. Some of you even now are taking great pains because you may not be able to leave an inheritance for your own children. Understand that if you want to be the greatest parent this world has ever seen, give them Christ as their inheritance. They'll have everything they ever need because they have riches laid up in heaven where moth and rust and the interest rate cannot destroy. (laughs) Trust in that. Royalty on earth is reserved for a few. That's why we all like to watch those shows on Netflix with the royals. I'm Canadian. My mother loves those shows. The queen, the princesses, all of it. brothers and sisters, the reality is on earth, royalty reserved for a few. In heaven, royalty is reserved for all. You are a royal people. You are Christ's princes and princesses. You are kings and priests. That's a glorious truth as you make your way home. Third and finally, you have been covered by the sun. You've been chosen by the Father, consecrated or separated out by the Spirit, and you've been covered by the Son. Peter writes, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This little statement is a big one. It's best translated like this, for obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's because of the order here. This is not talking about obedience to all the commands and obedience and being a good little boy and a good little girl in church. This is obedience to the gospel. 
It is obeying the gospel that gives you access to the blood of Christ that covers you. Now, oh boy, let me tell you, Peter's going to get to the commands. Don't you worry. He is. You wives with the insensitive husbands, I know us men can sometimes be a little much. He's going to get his in 1 Peter 3. And you husbands, and you're going, well, you don't know what it's like to live with her. Well, she's going to get hers too in 1 Peter 3. Trust me on that. The commands are coming. The commands to serve. The commands to submit. The commands to be sensitive and to love. Oh, yes, the commands are coming. But before the weights and the pressures and convictions of the imperatives come, the indicative is here. Peter wants them to know, obey the gospel. Turn to Christ. He washes and makes you new. And then through the Spirit's power and work, he'll help you live and walk through the challenges of being told, now live like this. And and some people wonder, what is the deal with blood? As though Christianity is a little morbid or cannibalistic. And last week we took communion and we take the juice, right? Symbolic of the blood of Christ. And we take the little cracker and it's symbolic of the bread or the uh, body of Christ. And there we are and we're remembering what he did. And people are thinking about what cosmic mechanism does the blood or the juice here, anything, do anything for me? Well, you have to look back to the Old Testament and that is what Peter is doing here. He's giving a picture. He wants you to essentially see before the new covenant and after the new covenant. So let me read this to you as we wind this down. Exodus 24, three through eight. It'll be on the screens. You don't have to turn there. Moses comes and tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. So in verses four and in verses five, we see he makes an altar. He designs it real nice. There's pillars like the 12 tribes of Israel. He sends the young men of Israel in verse five off. They burn offerings. There's sacrifices of oxen to the Lord. And then Moses takes half the blood, puts it in basins. Half the blood he throws against the altar. And then he takes the book of the covenant. And here in verse seven, I don't want you to miss this. You can read it with me on the screen. He reads it in all the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. Behold the covenant of blood that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So listen, you obey the rules and you're covered by the blood. You do what I just said and you're saved and forgiven. Old covenant, you gotta do all the work. You have to carry that burden. But Christ comes and he becomes the last and final sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, that satisfies the need for a blood covenant. It is Christ's blood that becomes the ultimate coverage. And when you obey the gospel, which is the good news, it's also bad news that you're a sinner and you have to turn to Christ and repent When you say, I will obey you, Jesus, I will obey the gospel, I will respond to the good news, the Father and the Spirit are doing a mighty work in you as you and your mind start to turn towards Christ. And why is this such a big deal? It's because how many of you know that you're going to sin today and tomorrow and Tuesday and on? How many of you know that the blood covers the sins you committed in the past, but thank God for Christ, it covers the sins you will still commit in the future. That is beautiful 
And that is the coverage that Peter is saying to these people in the midst of the perils, in the midst of it all, even when you don't do it right, even when you're a little confused and you're wondering how in the world am I gonna get through another day? Christ has you covered. And he closes this beautiful greeting saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In one of history's best-selling books, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Bunyan writes of a story that is allegory and he names his main character Christian. Something you and I can most certainly relate to. And Christian is on a journey to a celestial kingdom and Christian is going to encounter trial and peril and the devil himself trying to steer him off the king's course. And he has this burden on his back and the burden grows bigger and bigger and bigger and it's heavier and it's weighing him down and he's wondering how in the world am I gonna make it? And the king offers the solution. And along the way, he's provided with one who is called the interpreter. And the interpreter helps Christian understand all the things that are going on on this journey home. And so we read, the interpreter took Christian by the hand and he led him into a place where a fire burned in a fireplace in the wall. The interpreter here to show Christian something very significant points to a man who stood by the fire, continually throwing buckets of water on the flames, trying to quench it. However, this fire only burned higher and hotter. Again, Christian asked, what does this mean? Well, he said, there is the devil trying to quench the flame of your soul. The fire is the work of grace that has been kindled in your heart. And even though the devil continues to pour water on the fire, you can see the fire burns higher and hotter. Now let me show you, Christian, the reason for this. The interpreter led Christian behind the wall to the other side of the fire, where he saw a man with a container of oil in his hand. The man continually poured oil from the container secretly into the fire. What does this mean? Christian asked this time. The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually maintains the work already begun with the oil of his grace in the heart. By this grace, in spite of what the devil can do, the souls of his people still prove to be gracious. Brothers and sisters, Christians, you carry a, bear, a burden too difficult for you to bear too heavy for you to make it on your own. And my question for you this morning is very simple. As you observe a text that essentially takes you behind the wall of your salvation, what do you see? For those of you who have been chosen of God and separated by the Spirit, you see Christ stoking the flame of your soul, keeping you, igniting you, sealing you, carrying you. That is the reality for those who are chosen. And that is why in the end, you can look at Peter's greeting to this audience and you as well can receive the greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you as you make your way home.
Let's pray.